Hello world, welcome to a video episode of the Deep Dive. What? Yeah, it's true. It's the inaugural video episode and I'm super hyped to do it with AJ Jacobs. Hi, AJ. Hello, Eyal. Thank you so much for having me on this inaugural yeah. video episode. <laughs> yes, thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear from you about an idea that's been helping you live well. Yes, well, I have lots of things that we can talk about. One, I love your idea of being an explorer and doing new things. So I thought I might talk, at least in the beginning, about... Uh, an idea I haven't really talked about on other podcasts and that I don't have fully formed. It'll be an exploratory Great. conversation, which I like, but it a lot, it's a lot about how I'm trying to change the way I talk to be happier and to be a better person, because I really do think that language is the root of many of our problems and it distorts reality. And if we can change the way we talk, it'll change the way we think, change the way we look at the world. So I have um, five ways that I'm trying to change the way I talk that we can go over um, one by one pretty quickly. And I am excited because I know you, uh, you're a very thoughtful person. So I want to hear you. I want to explore it with you and get your feedback so that I can refine my thoughts. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. And um, thank you. I'll try not to disappoint. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe like very quickly before the five points, I'm, ex I'm eager to hear about, um, you know, maybe just one instance where language has failed you and, and kind oh. of prompted this thought. Well, these are the five things are the five times that they failed me. Okay. Uh, oh, fantastic. Then. So, well, one is... Uh, nouns especially nouns for people is a problem because i think you are labeled as something and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you become obsessed with it so for instance whenever if my kids say oh that guy's an asshole i say no he acted in an assholeish manner in that mm -hmm. particular instance we don't know about the rest of him we don't know what he's going through because if you say someone's an asshole then they then they'll start to act like an asshole. You'll view everything they do as an asshole. Mm. But of course, it's not just, I just use asshole because it's an interesting word. But um, <laughs> to me, but you know, don't, I would never identify myself as like, you know, a Jew. I would identify myself as, you know, someone who, who likes some of the Jewish traditions and thoughts. I would never say I'm an effective altruist. I like effective altruism, this philosophy of, trying to be smart about effective about altruism but i i would say i like some of altruism and uh, uh effective altruism and i think it is so important i think it would change a lot and weirdly i did some research there was a movement in the 1940s called e prime which was mm -hmm. all about eliminating the the verb to be when replying when wow. applying to people and I wish it had taken off because I think the world would be a better place, especially like also liberal and conservative. That's a huge problem. I, I would say, you know, I have some beliefs that accord with liberal thought and I have some beliefs that don't. But I would I hate being called a liberal or a conservative or a libertarian. It's so reductive and problematic. 
So that's point number one. What's your thoughts on that, Ayal? You are a, uh, you are a thinker. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I used the noun. Uh, you are a person who likes to think. So I would love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Well, my thought is, I, I, I really like it for the reason that. Basically, what you're saying is that we should move away from from speaking in a state-focused uh, manner to a process-oriented mm -hmm. manner, right? Definitely. And I, yes. I really like it because it's it's something that um, I just yesterday recorded an episode with Jack Hobner, and we discussed a little bit about uh, the difference between processes and states, and that is absolutely true in the end um we are processes we are ongoing processes you know so just recently i'll i'll give you an example about my life something which i'm trying to speak better about is health we say health as in i'm in i'm in good shape but this is actually um limiting us to look at one slice of time right one kind of snapshot uh, but really health is just inherently this thing that goes on over time, like keeping homeostasis and whatnot. So in that sense, we're constantly healing in the sense that we're fighting off entropy, right? That would be an example that comes to my mind. Agree a hundred percent. Yeah. It's all about, yeah. When you use a noun, you're fixing something in time. You're, you're making it essential and people change life changes, everything changes. So it is much better to avoid that essentialism. Mm. Uh, all right. So number two, are you ready for number two? Ready. Uh, I'm just trying to think of what to do as number two. Well, let me try this. I think in my opinion, opinions are a terrible thing. The word opinion is a terrible thing and has caused a lot of problem because what it does is it, um, it combines, conflates two totally separate ideas. One is your opinion, meaning that this is your taste. In my opinion, broccoli is delicious. In my opinion, country and Western is the best music. With a high, so that's one of the definite. Another definition of opinion is this is my hypothesis about the reality of the world. Uh, so in my opinion, uh, the world is flat. In my opinion, you know, abortion is wrong. These are totally different. And the problem is when you do have the right, you know, everyone has the right to their own opinion. In one sense, you have the right to like country music, but you don't have the right to an opinion when opinion really means a hypothesis with no value, with no evidence. So, I would say get rid of the whole word opinion because it's so confusing and mm. say either like my taste is I, you know, this is my personal taste. I love broccoli. I love, love Mexican food. That's one thing. Or you can say in my hypothesis is that guns should be banned across America. And here is why. And here's my evidence. Don't say in my opinion, guns should be banned. And I have a right to my own opinion. No, you don't. You have a hypothesis mm. that you can back up with evidence or not. And to me, that would be a huge, and I know it's just one word, but it would make a huge difference in the way we yeah. think. Yeah. So 
um, as I often do, I would take it to the realm of ancient Greek and mm-hmm. look what's there because ancient Greek is just objectively, it's my opinion. <laughs> it's just, it's just really good to do philosophy with ancient Greek for several reasons. Um, but the word for opinion would be doxa, right? So we know it from orthodoxy, for example, which literally means um, correct opinion. So you're being fed this thing and it's the correct opinion and you should not question it. Um, it also gives us dogma, which is the product of looking basically, or of opining, which is making a decision and sticking by it and then applying um, that. Um, but doxa comes from the verb dokeo, which is I, uh, I see, basically, I look. And uh, opinion is what seems to me, doxa, right? So if you say, uh, this is what seems to me, it's you understand immediately, literally, that you're talking about one perspective rather than mm-hmm. uh, an, an all-encompassing view of a thing, right? And actually, I think it would be okay if in our minds we retain that understanding that an opinion is just me sharing my perspective, right, about country music or anything. The problem is when we conflate opinion with knowledge, which is something with a much higher bar or standard of actually grasping something theoretically um, and and giving a good explanation for it, right, using evidence. Um, so... It's, it's going to be an interesting thing with language because it seems that we tend to take language and just for some reason omit parts that are actually reflected in the language as in it seems to me. But then after a while, you don't speak as if it seems to me. You speak as if it is, right? I love that. That is a, yes, that is a great way to put it. And speaking of the knowledge part, I've been reading this book called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, and it's about a, um, do you know that book? It's, no. Uh, I don't, it might be obscure, but it's about a, um, a guy who lived with an Amazonian tribe for decades and tried to analyze their language. And this was a tribe that had very little interaction with uh, the rest of the world. And in their language, there are, There is no one word for I know. There are three words depending on how you know that. So one version of I know is I saw it. I saw it with my, Mm. I know, you know, that he was at the restaurant last night because I saw it. Another version of I know is I heard it secondhand. I know he was at the restaurant Mm. because I heard from my friend. And the third is, I know because I deduced it. So I, you know, I, I saw, a, you know, the receipts that, uh, or you know, the, the restaurant. I, so I figured out that he was there. Oh, that's And I great. think that is a much, yeah, we need a much more specific vocabulary of how, of epistemology, of how we know stuff. Because otherwise, when people say, I know, like you say, it gives this level of, uh, legitimacy that it doesn't deserve. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with it 100%. Again, to go to ancient Greek, uh, another word for I know is oida. Oida is literally the uh, um, perfect 
um, aspect of I. So it, it literally means I have seen oida, uh -huh. but it, it just means I know in the present, even though it's in like a perfect aspect, uh, literally. Um, yeah, and the interesting thing is that we do have even in English um, understand and know, right? And we actually might have the vocabulary, but if you ask them, what is the difference between knowledge and understanding, it's going to get uh, murky kind of when you um, trying to discern the two. And it's almost like we, we might have the vocabulary, but we need to think long and hard about what actually the, the difference is. And uh, mm -hmm. there's a difference, but I'm not sure whether I when I take all the airtime, I don't know what you think. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I would have to think about it because I uh, haven't given enough thought to knowing versus understanding. Um, mm -hmm. But I do have one other epistemological language reform that I think would be important, yeah. which is, I think when we, we need to be more Bayesian, you know, Bayesian um, mm -hmm. probability, we need to think more in probability and even assign percentages. Because when you say something may happen, that could mean a 1% chance. It could mean a 99% chance. It is a huge difference. And this, I can't remember the exact wording, but my friend wrote a book uh, where he talked about the Bay of Pigs disaster. And one of JFK's advisors, he said to his advisor, what are the chances you know, is this going to succeed? And and the advisor says, this has, you know, there's a chance this will fail. And JFK interpreted that to mean a very low chance, whereas hmm. the guy was thinking in his mind, you know, there's a 50-50 chance this will fail. So that lack of specificity hmm. <laughs> <I> almost <laughs> caused World War III. So when I talk, I try to, you know, I'll say to my wife, She'll say, when are you going to be home? I'll say, you know, there's a 70% chance I'll be home at 6 p.m. And, you know, maybe a 10% chance I have to stay till 9. And she's like, all right, I don't need that specific. But I think it's good. <laughs> I think we do need, let's assign probabilities or let's come up with different words for, you know, I think I'll be home. So I think I'll be home might be like 10%. I'm I'm guessing I'll be home would be 30%, something like that. So because it's, life is much more of a dimmer than an on-off switch. And our language is built for the on-off switch. Yeah. Well, this is a perfect segue for me into uh, something that I need to vent anyway. But I don't know if you've ever, um, if you've ever learned how to play Texas Hold'em. I, I have. I'm not good yeah. at it, but I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not because it takes basically making yourself a computer these days and it's not much fun, oh, um, right. but it's an amazing game. I'm really hoping to get a poker player on this podcast to talk about the many things that could be carried over from playing Texas Hold'em into life. And one of them is, you know, make choices based on percentages or probabilities rather than outcomes. Right. And in the long run, you're going to um, to to run hot, uh, to basically benefit. Um, but just recently, there's a huge hand in the poker world where everybody's conflicted about where there's allegations of cheating 
and um, and nobody knows the truth. And right now it's been six days at the time when we're recording this, which is October 7th. Um, and they're freaking out about it. And because it's all poker players, first of all, it's amazing to see that even very good poker players who are kind of having the same protocols to think about hands are reaching vastly different conclusions about this. And a lot of them actually are saying things like, I went from believing that she's innocent uh, 75% to believing <laughs> in cheating of like 60%. And it's it's very interesting to see that. So you might want to tune in to that um, great like controversy that. because it's, it's like uh, an unfolding Agatha Christie novel in real time. It's fascinating. Wow. Well, um, it's a yeah, couple so of we, thoughts. I agree. Like yeah. when I say something, I say I believe 60% that... You know, we, we, that we should limit guns or whatever it is, I believe. Um, cause yeah, you can never be a hundred percent sure. So do you ever think that we're going to figure out the cheating or is there no way? Like what is the end, uh, end to this riddle? It's very hard. It's very hard. It just shows you like, there's a crazy set of facts. Um, it was basically starting with a, with a bizarre hand where, uh, a woman made the correct call and won the money. Um, but through just the usual reasoning of very good poker players, she wasn't supposed to make a correct call. Like with reasoning, she was supposed to choose something different, but she chose the winning um, thing. So, you know, it's, it's for the poker episode. But then now they're finding interesting things like... Um, actually, a, a crew member, a staff member actually stole money from her after the stream ended. So now they're saying, um, could he have taken his cut after the cheating? Um, stuff like that. Nobody knows. And there are two camps. And uh, it's it's actually great because people from both sides, because, because it's the poker community, a lot of them are saying, it's like, we don't know for sure. Good, um, yeah. It's it, it's really fascinating that it happened of, of all places in the poker world, right? Um, <laughs> right. It's very different in the chess community, for example, where they're just... Um, well, they're yeah, having so a cheating scandal too. I know, that, but right? it, I, I know, but I, I think it's not discussed in the same terms, which mm. this is what's interesting, you know? That is interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. And how do you, how do you come up with the probabilities is it very much intuition or is anything additional going into it well i mean when i i try to avoid intuition whenever i can i'm not a big fan of it uh so when i can figure out uh actual numbers i'm trying to get think of an example i mean i do try to reason so for instance you know if i'm if i'm scared if I leave my backpack, say, um, by a tree and, you know, go for, um, go for a run, like I try to think, what is the actual probability that someone's going to steal it? Like, you know, how many mm -hmm. people will pass by? How many of them are, you know, are sleazy? Uh, how, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'll never figure it out exactly, but it helps me. It helps calm me down in many ways. And like, you know, instead of being, hmm. oh, you know, 
like even with COVID, like what are the chance, what are the realistic chances? So should I actually go to this restaurant? What, and I'll never know the exact answer, but to try to think it through step-by-step rationally, as opposed to going with my gut, I find, I find it a better way to live. Yeah. So that's really interesting. What would be a number, a percentage that you'd be comfortable with living your backpack with some valuables? Exactly. Uh, is that a number that's not zero? I Yeah, no, it is not zero. It is not oh, zero wow. because like, you know, sometimes it's such a pain in the butt to, to lock up the backpack. Like I, I did this, I think it, yeah, like at a, an amusement park. I remember I left my backpack. I could either pay like $20 for the locker mm-hmm. or I could just like leave it in a corner. And I'm like, you know what? People are here for fun. They're going to be some sleaze balls, but you know, it's primarily children and, uh, the chances are slim that someone steals it and the chances are huge that it's a pain in the ass to lock it up. So I'm going to leave it and it didn't get stolen. So I don't know again that if I would made the right decision because just because something worked Mm -hmm. out doesn't mean it was the right decision as you know from poker, Uh but, uh, but it did work out. I will say that. Yeah. Okay. But, but I have to press you a little bit. Did you have a number? in your head, like an actual number in terms of percentage? I did not, but I would say, yeah, I guess it would be, well, it also depends how much, what is, how valuable what is inside it. So say it's like, say it's a hundred dollars value, then, and it was $20 for the locker, then it does Mm. make sense that the number would be 10%. Like, I mean, 20%, like if I am 20% or less uh, convinced that it's going to be stolen, (laughs) then I would leave it out. Yeah, you'd have to be right at least uh, five times before you're wrong once or something like that. Exactly, (laughs) right. (laughs) That's great. That's great. That is straight out of poker. So it's pot odds in real life. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said... Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. Uh, I was saying, you know, uh, I'm happy. I, I know you love poker and I you mentioned you love puzzles. So my latest book is about puzzles and I've given it a lot of thought. So I'm happy to pivot to puzzles for a bit if that's of interest to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, you did say you had five. So I don't know. Shouldn't we go? Was that, that five? All right. Well, I, I'm yeah, not I, sure. I have a few more that are in the... Um, but I'll just throw one out like sure uh, that's I, th- I guess it's similar to the opinion one but saying you know I never would say something like that that was a great movie or that was a you know an awesome meal because that is again conflating knowledge and objectivity with my taste so I would say I like that movie it appealed to me for XYZ reasons and that's my mm-hmm. problem with criticism. I, I hate when critics pretend that there's some objective reality that they're reflecting and saying, you know, this movie was, uh, you know, uh, was was contrived. Well, it, okay, what you're really saying is I have seen this kind of thing before and it did not appeal to me. But you uh, you should never state like an objective fact because it's also... 
I think it's bad for art in general. Like people should be allowed to experiment knowing that some are going to not like it and some are going to like it. But if you are in a powerful position and say, this is crap, that is really, you know, stultifying to the, to art in general. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Between your uh, two points, actually, because it's also not speaking in these like adjectives, right? Also. And um, so more, more putting it and making sure that it's understood that it's a perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I agree with it totally. And yeah, here, here comes the pivot. Um, puzzles. <laughs> um, yeah, language is a tool, right? But not a tool that was consciously fashioned to really achieve, or I think it evolved naturally to achieve something specific, which is um, probably survival, because that's what we evolved to do. So I, I would imagine that if, for example, we evolved to really like high sugar foods, right? In order to survive, I would imagine that language has also evolved to kind of do the same thing, right? I and, love it. What's an example uh, of that? I, I like the idea, mm-hmm. sort of the super, um, what's it called? The super stimulus. So yeah. is there an example you can think of? Not to put you on oh, the spot. Um, yeah, if it's a super stimulus. Yeah, I I don't know that I was approaching it from that way. Um, So I would have to think about, but my thought is, you know, we have to account for the fact that our language is uh, state oriented, not process oriented, is all these things and recognize that, yes, we don't like it today, but maybe that's part of our evolution into as a species who seeks to live to live well, rather than just live which is a big, big difference, Um, right? So I think in a sense, language has served us very well, right? Yeah, it it has. I agree with you 100%. Language probably evolved for uh, survival and and making um, social connections as opposed to reflecting reality. And I will say, here's the pivot to puzzles because Mm -hmm. I think puzzles... I, I wrote a book about all different kinds of puzzles. So there was, you know, riddles, but also Sudoku, logic puzzles, chess puzzles. Uh, but word puzzles in particular, I think, are good at making you think about language because a good word puzzle is it's basically a pun. It's taking a word that you think has one meaning and it actually has another. So like, you know, a a crossword puzzle clue that talks about a, a trunk and you're thinking, oh, it's the trunk of an elephant, but no, it's the trunk of your torso or it's the trunk of a, you know, a luggage uh, is also called a trunk. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's that kind of twist. And it just, it's changed the way I read because I, I always think, I can't believe how many words, how imprecise English is and how words have so many meanings. The word set, S-E-T, is the world record holder for no, most meanings in the wow. Oxford English Dictionary. It's over <laughs> 600 meanings what? for just, I think it's just the noun version of set, which is crazy. Like what Holy is going moly. on? 
So uh, I, I can give you an example of where I think this can get dangerous is like when I read the word freedom, I try not to have like a, a reflex reaction. Freedom is good because freedom is a complicated word that encompasses everything. So the free market, I am overall capitalist, but I think there needs to be regulation. So I'm not a free market like fundamentalist. So, but if you hear the phrase free market, you're like, oh, free, that's a good thing. Free is mm. good. But really you could phrase it as unregulated market, or you could think, well, this market, if it's totally free, it takes away other kinds of freedoms, like the freedom to choose different companies if there's a monopoly because there's it's totally free market and it it might re result in monopolies then you're as a consumer you don't have freedom so it might be a free market in one way but not free for the consumer anyway the yeah the point is for me puzzles have made me much more aware of what a friend of mine calls suitcase words words that mm -hmm. contain many different meanings yeah yeah and um yeah it's so funny that you mentioned freedom because i literally was involved in a tweet about freedom and somebody wrote you know what um what would you do i can't remember the phrasing but it was it was um yeah basically presenting freedom as this good thing that you just like you we're mentioning now you know and i was just compelled to write you know i i have never been happier um I have never been happier since I committed to be doing well in life, right? Or committed to being a good father to my daughter or committed to be a good partner to my wife, you know? And this is not freedom. These are all instances where I figuratively chained myself to this other person <laughs> or to this idea, right? And um, yeah, so it's 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 very interesting and... Um, yeah, I, I I agree completely. I think that, um, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an issue with language, and and we're we're at a time I think where the evolution, just as it has with our physical evolution to choose high sugar foods, it's time for us to now think about it from a higher level and shape it into something different and to create better habits. It's the same with language, right? We're now in a position where we are already okay. We're surviving. Now we need to be thriving, right? And take it to the next level and adopt a kind of... It's beyond language too, right? Ultimately, it's the thinking behind the language, right? So, um, yeah, and I wanted to ask you when it comes to puzzles... Uh, a leading question I'm going to ask, but haven't you found that it's actually, um, because you were mentioning learning, right? And isn't it making learning much more effective when you are with questions led to kind of touch um, the walls that actually limit an idea, right? So you have some sort of negative space that stays in the middle. Um, yeah, I don't know. How does that relate to puzzles or what are some puzzles that you've found that do this? Yeah, I love that. And I do think they are amazing for learning. I mean, it is funny because throughout puzzle history, you have these two strains. So you have one strain is like when the crossword first came out in 1913, the New York Times 
was it became this huge craze and it was in almost every newspaper but the new york times thought saw it as uh, as too is like cheap amusement and they they wrote they called it a pestilence they were really dismissive and it was almost like a vice it was almost like crack cocaine I, and they had all these headlines like you know <laughs> Man murders wife over crossword puzzle. Prison riot over crossword. So there's one strain of people seeing it as an addictive vice. But the other strain that's been around since the very start, one of the first puzzle books in the 1600s was called Tools for Strengthening the Mind or Sharpening the Mind. So seeing it as a a way to become a better thinker. And that, Mm. no surprise, is the strain that, that... I resonate with. And I do think it is a great way to learn for many reasons. I mean, first, it's it's more fun. Like you're if you're just trying to sit and you're hearing a lecture, you know, I'm gonna tune out. But if I'm I'm solving a problem together with the professor, then that is going to be I'm gonna pay more attention. Um Another way I think it is good is it trains us to be creative thinkers. You know, the there's the cliche, think outside the box, mm-hmm. which actually the cliche originated with a puzzle. So I feel okay saying the cliche because the puzzle was, huh. you probably know it, nine, there were nine dots in a square pattern. Okay. And the puzzle was to draw a line that connects all mm. the dots and um, right. and how do you do it? And the only way to do it in three or four lines, I can't remember whether it's four, I think it's four, is to go outside the, the box, right. go outside the corner um, and go all the way. And so I love that. And I do think for me, it has really spurred creative thinking. And you see it, you see it in life all the time. You know, even... A lot of puzzles are about turning something upside down. Uh, and that I see in life all the time. A lot of innovations are about, like the the assembly line was, let's bring the car parts to the workers instead of having the workers go to the car parts. And hmm. you can see that, like I'll give you one example of a puzzle with upside down thinking, which is... Um, uh, there's a man in a room, the walls are concrete, the floor is dirt, and there's nothing else. Besides, there's a locked door and a skylight. So the man starts digging in the dirt. He knows the dirt goes down thousands of feet, but he still keeps digging. What is he thinking? What's he trying to do? So I'm just uh, giving myself a recap. There's a man uh, standing on a dirt floor. There are walls all around him with a door and a skylight on top. A locked door. No way out of that door. A locked door. Right. And he's digging, digging, digging. Um, well, is it like kind of like the, the, the children's joke about you're going to get to China or something like that? <laughs> he is never going to get to China. Well, I guess he would if he lived thousands of years. No, what you do to solve it is you've got to sort of think back or upside down. Like he is digging a hole, but when you dig a hole, what else are you doing? Where is that dirt going? You're making a mound. You're making True. a little hill. 
So what he's doing is he's not digging the hole for the hole. He's digging the hole to build a mountain, a little mountain that he can climb up and get to the skylight. So and, that... and to anybody listening and thinking, ah, Eyal is an idiot. No, you guys try, try it on your first video episode <laughs> to be stumped with a, with a puzzle. Listen, I did not get it either. I think I, so listen, I didn't. And yeah, I did not mean to put you on the spot. I was just an example of unintuitive thinking. I, I embrace it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, that is just that's an example of how I think puzzles yeah. make us learn have better. You, have you um, has there anything changed in your behavior thinking in in general? Like, are you more likely to actually come up with puzzles for yourself, knowing that they would make you or um, yeah, think about things as puzzles? Is it, is it something that you that you transferred the skill that you transferred i i would say yes i would say seeing the world as a series of puzzles is a very powerful tool and in fact the musician quincy jones he has a little life philosophy he says i don't have problems i have puzzles and i love that because the word problem is very intimidating. It seems intractable. It seems painful. Whereas a puzzle, it's like, okay, I can solve that. It's solution-oriented. It's, it's almost a little playful. And I try to see my problems as puzzles whenever I can. And I'll give you a very concrete example, which is if I'm talking to someone from the other side of the political spectrum, you know, things can get ugly. And I guess my... My default mode would be to argue, debate, try to convince them with facts and be like, how can you be so mm -hmm. stupid here? X, Y, and Z facts. That, as you might have noticed in the last 10 years, is not <laughs> very effective. And in fact, often it is counterproductive because they polarize and you just get more entrenched. So instead, if I'm talking to someone with a radically different opinion, I will try to see it as a puzzle and almost encourage them to see it as a puzzle and not a war, but a, a cooperative adventure. Why do we believe what we believe? Why does she believe what she believes? Why, what evidence, is there any evidence that I could present to change her mind? Anything that she could present to change my mind? Um, why do we believe what we believe? Why, what, what can we do to move forward even if we don't agree? Is there anything, any way to do that? So all of these, I think, are interesting puzzles. First of all, it makes my life more pleasant because instead of screaming and getting angry, I'm like solving mysteries. And secondly, I do think, you know, if we are going to get through these huge tribal rifts, then this is the way through. It's not through like, you know, berating someone until they're like, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. Now I see your point of view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we might as well mention that this is done with, with the language that is that is so um, flawed at first glance. But if we work with it and we are not confused about what we're saying in our own mind, we can understand um, how to use it better. And I think, like you, there is 
almost nothing more beautiful than actually talking to someone and seeing what they mean when they when they talk about something, right? So uh, Raymond um, Carver has a short story called "What What Do We Talk About When We Talk About Love," right? And um, yeah, it's something that uh, just the title it. <laughs> I, I don't carry the whole message of the story with me, but just the title is like you meet somebody and it's actually very important to, um, to figure out what they're talking about and what's the, what the underlying concept is, because we can't assume that when they say something, we mean the, the same thing. And it is like solving a puzzle, right? You're going into their mind. You don't know how these concepts relate to one another there you, you don't know you just hear the words coming out and as you ask questions and you can navigate the space and there's like when you say you know um when you say this thing do you necessarily mean the other thing or not and as you get more questions things click right things fall into place it almost is like solving a puzzle and when you have a clear idea of what they're like then you can juxtapose it with your own matrix of concepts and find a way to communicate and um, it's a fascinating fascinating uh, thing to do for sure yeah i love that you embrace it as well and in terms of traditional puzzles what are your what are your genres do you like word puzzles Sudoku, do any of those uh, chess puzzles? What what do you like? Yeah, Magic good puzzles? question. Um, so I already mentioned an Agatha Christie novel in the context oh. of the poker hand that's unfolding. You know, I really love the the Who Done It. Um, although, could they be called puzzles? Uh, this is something which I I always wondered about, and maybe you, with your knowledge of puzzles, can help me. Are they proper puzzles, or is it always the case that the solutions are kind of deus ex machina, uh, but we're given a notion that we could have figured it out. But really, I, I think that Agatha Christie or Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle still held all, kept all the power to themselves. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. What do you think? Are they, could well, these that be called would be puzzles? Well, first of all, I think I am very liberal in my use of puzzle. I think it, it's a very big 10. So anything where there's an aha moment, anything where mm. uh, you can have some sort of revelation and see things in a new way can be a puzzle. So I do, and, and I was going to have a chapter in my book on mysteries. I just ran out of time. But I would be very interested from an object, like from an empirical point of view, does Agatha Christie hold all of the power? Like if if you had 100 people read and then there were none, how many would figure it out? And maybe you're right and it's like zero or one, but maybe, especially if you've read like 10 Agatha Christie's in a row right before, maybe you could get to like, you know, 20% of people figure it out, which I hope yeah. because I, I think that's better. I think if you have... My friend said there's nothing easier than to design an impossible puzzle. Like it is, it's really easy to come up with a puzzle that no one can solve because you just have to hide everything. So you have to, a good puzzle is like a, a, you know, a good piece of art where there's, there's little, there's a rhythm to it. You get certain aha moments building to the final aha moment. So I, I'm hopeful 
I, but you're right. It's funny because I always get to the end and I'm like, I could have figured that out. But really, could I have? But could you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't that. I, I say it because it would be frustrating to me. I mean, I was probably like eleven or twelve reading those, so I don't know if I could piece all the things together. But I remember noticing that you know this wasn't a completely fair um, game. Although you know maybe I should have read them twenty times without the ending, you know, and mm. then figure out like, oh, maybe if you don't you don't actually read the chapter where Poirot brings them all together into one room and you read these chapters first like a dozen times maybe you could have figured it out so anyway I remember being tantalized by those books like so addictive right and um yes crosswords uh crosswords which by the way in Hebrew are just much easier to make just because we don't have the vowel letters so oh, it's like so much easier. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's also, I, I don't know if you have it in English, but do you have the form where it's like logic crosswords, where it's like word games kind of going on? Because in Hebrew, that's a big thing, again, because of the, because of the script and the spelling. Um, so I really like those. Uh, today, I think it's mostly, you know, and I, I hate to bore my... <laughs> my my loyal listeners with this um but uh but plato's puzzles um his dialogues are amazing puzzles and they use many different layers of of clues and things like it's a drama and it's about language too because the language is extremely confusing people just speak their mind on there um if they're rhetoricians they also subvert logic and intentionally do wordplay to um, to sway public opinion, things like that. Um, but if you go up and you look at the deeper or higher levels of the dialogue, things stabilize. And then in the end, if you did everything correctly, you can actually um, glance at something which uh, is probably Plato's opinion, which he never never ever expressed straightforwardly as in a mass or a treatise. Um, so, and I'm fascinated by those. I that keep revisiting them. Um, is there yeah. a clear example? I mean, I know a little, but not much like the cave. I know that mm. sort of story, but what is an example of a Plato puzzle? Is it, are you able to say it or it's too long and complicated? Well, um, so there's um, there's an episode on dialectic, which I did with my ancient Greek uh, teacher and uh, dialectic mentor, Ivor. So um, anybody interested can, can go there. Um, he also has a podcast, which goes into detail, into a couple of dialogues. So the, the whole dialogue is a puzzle. Mm. Um, the cave, for example... It's not a coincidence that actually had Socrates' interlocutors in the dialogue um, paid attention to what he's saying. They would actually tell him, Socrates, this cave is impossible to draw, which it is. If you look at um, drawings of it online, it's ridiculous. And some things, some uh, they have to be playing around just like these people standing in a pit basically holding these models but it doesn't make sense uh mm -hmm. like in terms of laws of physics okay um 
And people don't do that because they assume Plato is just about the philosophical content. So if something doesn't add up in the laws of physics, they just ignore it because ostensibly <laughs> that's not the interesting part, except Plato is trying to hint at you at different times in dialogues that if something is weird, you should look into it and you should maybe try to connect it with another weird thing that doesn't sit perfectly well and maybe look at the character and why why is this caused be um because of the interaction of the mm -hmm. characters and who are these characters what what are their concepts and why do they say what they say what are their motivations and from there on you you gain this amazing kind of picture that's emerging up until a point where you say got it and um yeah i think you i think you'd actually love hearing more about it so i could yeah to, i can't I wait to listen to the episode to awesome um yeah so i i i think that's that's a puzzle that a type of puzzle that i'm very concerned with and then life and then life itself as you say uh problems are, are puzzles and each is a unique puzzle which has not been seen before and will not be seen after isn't it right yeah and i think that um i love the metaphor i think it's got its limits because i think um, uh, a sort of a human-made puzzle has one perfect answer you know the jigsaw puzzle has the way that it's supposed to fit together whereas life puzzles there's mm. no one perfect answer there's like 10 different solutions and they're all slightly off they're all suboptimal percentages so right right there's you gotta sort of look at which is the best of those 10 semi-solutions and i also think life puzzles are much more complicated because well one way i like to picture it is it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces are constantly changing shape because you know the like you said nothing is static it's all a process so the puzzle itself is changing as we're trying to solve it. Yeah, absolutely. This and this is, you know, this ties back to the whole idea of looking at things more more as processes than than states, right? Uh, one image I have in my head, um, and I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again, is a snake moving through rocky terrain. You know, if you look at it, it's just so damn elegant, like taking just the most streamlined way of doing it kind of slithering between the things and they are in its way but it's actually using them right the snake has to kind of use them as leverage for movement he put it it pushes against them to move forward and it's just this beautiful thing so you're right uh, isolating problems as as like concrete puzzles that are this thing which you have to do is not going to do right because by the time you think you've solved it you already somewhere else um so this is where it's um becoming uh more like a dance uh but the the way to judge it then is not to see if you've actually solved the puzzle and get this rush of like hey i got the right answer but actually experiencing the flow that the snake feels moving through this rocky terrain right or something like that so it the, the criterion changes a bit i love that yeah <laughs> is it <laughs> yeah is it is it is it something that you've 
actually noticed, like living with the awareness that, um, yeah, the, the, the world is a, is a series of puzzles that keep moving. Yes. And I think, I think one of the, the secrets to solving puzzles that I use in my life is cognitive flexibility. Like you need that to solve a puzzle. You need to be able to see it from a hundred different angles or else, because the puzzle maker wants you to see it in one way, but the solution is going to be another. And I, this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of language, the flexibility, like, and putting probabilities on things instead of black and white. That to me has made all the difference. And I think, you know, I, I, I haven't cracked the code on how to live well, but I, I work at it and I experiment and it is in that experimentation that I think is the key. It's always trying new things. You know, maybe one week I'll, I'll say, well, let's see if, I'm a fan of memento mori, so like, uh, you know, reminding myself of death so that I, I try to cherish life when I have it. So like, I'll experiment, you know, how can I create memento moris in my life that make my life better instead of depress me? You know, is it that I put up like little pictures of skulls? What if the skulls were like, you know, cute cartoon skulls, so you, they don't scare you? You know, how else can I be reminded of my, can I, should I have a counter, a death counter where it's like, you know, my expected, I'm expected by insurance to live another 30 years mm -hmm. or whatever, <laughs> you know, should I put that in the corner? So I try all these things, remain flexible and see what works. Yeah. So if, if you, if you were looking at the parts of your soul, let's say, and by soul, I just mean the non-physical aspect, you know, whatever we call emotions or mind or desires or something like that. Have you noticed that because you're able to approach things with curiosity and really integrate all these things to work on problems, there's less friction there. Everything is more well-oiled, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, again, there still needs to be a lot more oil. Uh, I'm still <laughs> a huge work in progress. But I do think that one thing, just like thinking about, oh, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling really angry. Why am I feeling angry? You know, what, what is going on? Is this anger helping? You know, is this, um, what can I do to alleviate the anger? So when I have being very aware of my emotion, my emotional state, and then immediately turning it into a puzzle and being curious about it, as opposed to just, you know, blindly following my feelings. Because I do think feelings, you know, without feelings, there would be no, no point to life. I do think, you know, joy and curiosity and, and wonder and awe are all amazing feelings. But I also don't trust them. I don't think that you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, a lot of times we have our feelings are there um, for reasons that no longer exist. You know, like, like if I'm in line at the drugstore and someone cuts me and, you know, my, my blood pressure spikes, you know, that would be good if I were about to attack them mm -hmm. or run away. But those are not options in the Dwayne mm -hmm. Reed, uh, uh, you know, when I'm, 
uh, you know, in 2022. So like, is that anger useful? And, and why am I having it? What can I do to feel better? What can I do to prevent it in the future? That kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, puzzles definitely seeing it. The world is a puzzle. Seeing my mental state as a puzzle is, is huge in terms of how I live. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I'd like to puzzle you about something <laughs> in the yes. spirit of, and you know, it doesn't mean that the answer is correct just because, just because this is what I think, but, um, what, what is it that kind of gives us so much satisfaction, let's say, even if it's momentary when we solve a puzzle? That is a good puzzle. I mean, I see, think that there are a lot of ways to answer it. First, I think there's an evolutionary drive. We have an instinct to solve puzzles uh, because I think the first puzzle was, you know, how do I get food or who do I mate with? Uh, so those, I think we're driven to get whatever it is, the dopamine rush, whatever chemical, when you solve something, you get that. So we are... Um, uh, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it's more than just, you know, an evolutionary drive. I think it is, to me, it's the joy of an unexpected, uh, I love surprise. I love the idea of something that I couldn't have seen coming. I also love the idea of something, uh, you know, chaos suddenly becoming order. Everything looks like what the heck is going ding, on? Ding, ding, ding. You like that? <laughs> I'll tell you. Yeah, I love it. So first of all, I think it, it kind of ties back to the whole discussion of, you know, we evolved to survive and now we want to thrive. We want to take it a step further. So right. uh, the old way of, of living and surviving actually involved a lot of risk taking in, in some other departments. For example, fighting other mates, uh, fighting fighting other males for mating or something like that, right? So it actually, right. as much as it was about surviving, there was also a lot more risking your life and putting yourself in um, in danger. Um, so it's not just the, the, the reward, I think, chemically. I think what is common to all the, the puzzle solving, like that moment when you suddenly perceive fittingness, which I, I think that is um, understanding that the good as a concept is the fitting, is one of the, the biggest um, steps in evolution in our thinking that we can make is really understanding the concept of the good and, and, and realizing that it's fittingness. And in everything that we call good, we actually perceive fittingness, although we sometimes forget what type of good it is. Is it? good for us? Is it good for something else? Is it uh, good visually? Is it good? Um, uh, so there are different types of good, but when you solve the puzzle and let's think of, of just the, the, the simple jigsaw puzzle, right? It's, it's the fittingness that gives us this inexplicable, inexplicable almost sense of, of wonder and just like for this one moment, You've, you, you're being transformed or transcending something. Isn't that right? I love that. And yeah, there was uh, the, uh, I met the guy who they call the godfather of Sudoku. 
and he mm-hmm. had a nice metaphor for puzzles. He he reduced puzzles down to three symbols. So the first is the question mark, and that which is like you get there and you're baffled. Then the forward arrow, which is when you are solving it, like that's the process of solving it. And then the exclamation point, which is mm-hmm. the aha moment. And I love that. So just three. And he said it wasn't, wasn't just for puzzles, but that same question mark, arrow, exclamation point was like a lot of life. And his point was he was very, he had sort of a Zen flavor, I think, because he said, you got to embrace the arrow. You don't know if you're going to get to that aha moment, which, you know, we, you and I both love that. But you've also. Oh, boy. What the heck was that? (laughs) That's a puzzle. What the heck just happened? It's a puzzle. Uh, Anyway, so yes, I love the idea of embracing the arrow as well as the end. Um, Speaking of the end, I I got assigned a couple of things today, which screwed with my schedule. And I'm sorry because I could talk to you for hours, but I might have to leave soon. I'm sorry. Of course, I'll just uh, complete one last thing, which is just to tie it back to the idea of just living life in this kind of beautiful way, moving through the terrain and looking at the situation, always acting with grace, you know. So I think a puzzle is ultimately a metaphor for that. But when once you start to play and everything becomes more complex, there is no question mark or exclamation mark it's a never-ending thing and you can just kind of try to live your life in a state where um the fittingness is fleeting but you're always going around it and there are moments where you perceive it and these moments are just absolutely beautiful and worth um cherishing so yeah um, yeah. well that image of a snake is uh, i love that one i'm gonna think about that because it's also (laughs) as good because they're constantly interacting with the environment, the rocks, and figuring out how to negotiate them, which I think is a great metaphor for, you know, again, flexibility. The rock, they're yeah. going to be rocks, and you've got to figure out how to work with them. Fantastic. Well, AJ, I won't hold you any longer, but I I'm would sorry. love for you to share with um, with listeners, you know, just details on where you could be found online and your latest book. And uh, could you just say where the where the treasure hunt stands with the book? I know that the, in the introduction there was the first clue, but has has this been solved at all? Oh yes, I had hid a, a secret code in the introduction of the book that if you put it into the puzzlerbook.com website. It opened up to a series of amazing but really hard puzzles that my friend Greg Pliska and his friends wrote. The first to solve it got $10,000, and someone did solve it after a month. So you can't get the 10000 but the puzzles are still there, and they are still amazing. So go to thepuzzlerbook.com, and you can access the puzzles. And, of course, I would love for you to buy the book, The Puzzler, and I'm at ajjacobs.com on Twitter at ajjacobs, etc. So I would love to hear from any any of your loyal listeners. Fantastic, AJ. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a fun episode to make, and I'm happy we have it on video as well. Um, 
Oh yes, yeah. that was exciting to be part <laughs> of that uh, debut. And and yes, I loved the conversation. And and thank you for letting me talk about things that I have never talked about before. Thank you so much.